Today is October 4th, 2014, and this is episode 150. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is new, highly experimental, and we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we're talking about Apple and PayPal. Stephanie and Andreas recently sat down to dig into the incursions by technology companies into what was until quite recently the exclusive domain of banks and financial institutions. But first, I'm joined by Stephanie for a brief discussion from the day after the PayPal announcement. Enjoy the show. Adam, have you seen this creepy PayPal video with the uh, multiple different faces mashed together and the uh, multiple voices on top of each other talking about how you can spend Bitcoin with the tap of your phone and we've got magic internet money not tied to banks? Oh my God, Stephanie, it's hilarious to me that you're, you're, uh, you think it's creepy? I thought it was great. I was like, wow, this is actually, you know, like I, I was a little skeptical at first because there, if you notice, there are fewer voices during that one part where it talks about Bitcoin than any of the other things. So they must have like added it in at the end. But yeah, I think it's great. I just think the style of the video is creepy. I've never really seen a video like that and I didn't like it. It was a little bit epileptic, you know, just <laughs> like the different faces flashing on top of each other. We'll have to put a link to it in the show notes so that people can see it and uh, judge for themselves. I'm definitely not saying I think that the concept of Bitcoin is creepy or anything like that. I'm just saying that the style of the video did not appeal to me. This was um, <laughs> I feel a like rumor I'm being that like this went- paranoid conspiracy theorist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that you're being a little bit overconcerned about it. I mean, it's a marketing video. People do all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so the funny <laughs> thing about this video was this: there's a backstory here. I'm a voice actor, and I spend a good part of my day auditioning for voiceover jobs, you know, on online casting sites like Voices.com and Voice123. And I actually saw a job posting of this video a couple days before it came out, and I I said, "Wow. Okay." It didn't say like this is going to be announcing PayPal Bitcoin integration or anything like that. But I knew about Braintree. That was a branch of PayPal and they were thinking about Bitcoin. You know, sometimes these producers just like make videos for big companies, but the big company hasn't like approved the message or anything like that. So I thought, oh, you know, this could be BS. I really don't know what's going to come of this, but it's very interesting. So I actually had had sort of seen the script a couple of days before it came out. I wasn't sure if it was for real, so I didn't say anything about it, but it turned out to be for real. It is an interesting thing. Usually, you know, we've talked about PayPal in the past. In the past, they've expressed interest in Bitcoin, and my response to that has been to kind of laugh and say, yeah, says the horse buggy whip manufacturer to the automobile. Yes, I, your automobile, that, that seems like it might be fine at some point in the future. We're very interested in watching future development, you know, but not really actually <laughs> being interested. It was interesting to see this. So, Stephanie, do you mind if I give a little background on Braintree? I checked out their Wikipedia. <laughs> oh, please. Yeah. So, Braintree, I'm going to just read you a little uh, excerpt from it. Braintree provides businesses with the ability to accept payments online or within their mobile application. Its full-stack payment platform replaces the traditional model of sourcing a payment gateway and merchant account from different providers. On October 1st, 2012, Braintree launched Instant Signups, streamlining the onboarding process for U.S. merchants, reducing the sign-up time to a few minutes. 
So uh, in August 2013, Braintree announced its new Marketplace product, which manages the payouts, taxes, compliance, and chargebacks for marketplace and sharing economy operators. In September 2013, the company released enhanced fraud tools to all its merchants. They've uh, pushed uh, an initiative that they started in 2010 called the Credit Card Data Portability Standard which was accepted as an official action group of the Data Portability Project. Credit card data portability is supported by an opt-in community of electronic payment processing providers that agree to provide credit card data and associated transaction information to an existing merchant upon request in a manner that complies with the standards, basically, that they created. So Braintree is a company focused on making it easier for its users to make payments by not asking them to type in their credit card information anywhere. They do this with agreements and insurance and fraud prevention employees on top of existing credit card charges. So adding Bitcoin as an option with Coinbase is like free money since the purchaser is now the one paying the transaction fee. So this is really, I mean, like this, this makes a ton of sense to them just based on the current environment. Beyond that, it's in this same time as Apple is doing their thing, right? This announcement was not made in a vacuum. It was made like 24 hours before the Apple Pay announcement. And Apple Pay is interesting because it's basically Google Wallet except for your phone and it has like touch payment stuff. And Google Wallet really has not taken off because it doesn't actually solve any of the problems that are relevant. It doesn't change credit card fees. It doesn't change the fact that you still have chargeback risk. It doesn't change any of these things at all. It just kind of changes who's paying for them and who has to care about them in the stack. Yeah, and in, interestingly enough, I've heard that Apple actually has the largest bank of credit card numbers of any company. You know, they've had iTunes and they just keep everybody's credit cards on file essentially from that. So they have lots of credit card numbers. Yeah, they have lots of credit card numbers. And this is a way, and I mean, the other thing that this does is this is a fully integrated payment solution within Apple. So it makes it easier to buy stuff uh, with Apple. And I'm sure that if they haven't already, they will let third-party developers integrate with this because that's the point of it. You know, they essentially are trying to do PayPal except just in the Apple ecosystem. That's, I mean, that's the model with the Apple ecosystem. They are the definition of having a community of users and then trying to create as many products and services as possible to extract value from that community of users. And with Apple, it's, you know, I mean, you get ease of use, but I don't know. I used to be an Apple user. The last thing I had was an iPad mini that broke a while ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't use any Apple products, and I don't think I've given my credit card number to Apple. But uh, you never know. I might have forgotten about it or something. (laughs) But yeah, this would not be something that I would use personally, but... um, I'm sure it's going to be useful for a lot of people and it's going to be very seamlessly integrated into stuff that they've already had. I've heard people say that they think that this is going to basically like they think Apple thinks this is going to like replace money, essentially like their Apple's thinking this is going to be huge. You know, look at the product that it launched with. It launched with a smartwatch that requires that you have a specific type of phone, right? And like you have to have the newest phone in order to use it. So, I mean, like, this is the definition of trying, I mean, of trying to build closed environments where people become more and more and more invested in your system and you're just recycling them over and over again. Value really comes from competition, from people saying, oh, well, I could have this, but look at what that guy over there came up with. And no, that thing is actually a little bit cheaper because he's, you know, a smaller competitor and, and wants to get the market penetration. Whereas if you just have this giant monolithic ecosystem, you know, it's really smart for Apple. They don't care what happens in their ecosystem to a certain extent because they get some of all of it. The only thing that's really unsustainable about that model is how much they take, right? By taking 30% from app developers, and I'm sure that, you know, the numbers are going to go down over time. That's, that's really what's happening is that open source alternatives, not just open source alternatives, but competition in general. I think one of their strategies for a while has been 
and to try to mitigate that by basically making a lot of proprietary stuff, including hardware, you know, where like you can't even charge, you know, you have to have a special iPhone charger, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you have to have like the latest phone to work this new smartwatch. And so they're going to be making money from people buying their new products that, that you have to have to be able to do the latest, coolest things. Are they going to be making money hand over fist because they're also charging the app developers 30% or whatever every time anybody buys something? And are they going to be able to maintain that? It's kind of an artificial way of, you know, protecting their profits by just making all this well, stuff it works so until it doesn't. closed off and proprietary. But it's worked pretty well for them. I don't think that they're making hand over fist money with this. This is, again, this is just another way to make it easy to stay. And so the perceived cost of any difficulty to switch is that much more amplified. They haven't talked about fees yet officially. The rumors that I've been hearing are that fees will basically be standard credit card fees. And the way that's been negotiated is that the banks are simply taking less and Apple is taking what's what's made up. And, and realistically, it'll probably be a very complicated deal that involves different types of pay rates for different types of interactions. You know, getting back to the, the PayPal thing for a second, Braintree and Coinbase makes a ton of sense because like I said earlier, they have this couple of percentage points that's just a natural built-in cost that everybody expects to be there. But when you take that out by using Bitcoin, instead of going through the 2% you know, credit card uh, processing system, then you're left with this money that's basically just free money. And so uh, it was interesting to see that Braintree actually isn't going to be charging anything for that. It's going to be straight pass through as far as I can tell. They're essentially just providing an a, uh, easy integration with Coinbase's service. Coinbase also isn't charging any fee on the first million that is processed by them per right. customer. It's a real coup. So again, like what I'd really like to see, there are lots of potential users that could come online very easily as a result of this, not the least of which is Airbnb. You could take, you know, 1% of this, keep, you know, the other percent as a profit, take 1% and create a rewards program. It's a very interesting way to get people to sign in. Um, it's an interesting way to recruit users. Yeah, it's an interesting way to recruit users. The, the relevant part of it is that it's like uh, gift.com. Gift.com uh, offers 1% back if you pay with credit card, 2% back if you pay with PayPal, and 3% back if you pay with Bitcoin. Um, PayPal, they're not, I mean, they, they have a partnership with PayPal, so they might get discounted rates or something because of that. But other than that, it's not actually any different than the credit card. So what you can do is you can encourage people to use these cryptocurrency solutions simply by only providing or providing a better version of your rewards program for that. At the very least, what merchants get from this, even if they convert straight to dollars, is they get no chargeback risk. The chargeback risk stops being their user and starts being Coinbase. Yeah, exactly. So I guess Coinbase is sort of taking on some extra risk in that situation, right? You know, they're taking on extra risk, but that's what they want to do. I mean, they want to be this giant point of nexus because it allows them to, on the one hand, have people, you know, buying at them from retail. And on the other hand, it allows them to have these merchant relationships where they have Bitcoin coming in and they can sell that to their users. You know, so I mean, like it's it's a total win. It's a total win for them. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's a. You know, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see how fast this rolls out, but I think that this could be potentially a big deal. I, I was not really anticipating PayPal would make any sort of move like this again, because I thought, oh, well, you know, they are competing against Bitcoin. But that's such a naive thing to think. It's in reality, they're competing against Apple, Google Wallet and things like that. Bitcoin is being used as a tool by PayPal to, you know, to wage war against Apple, to, to uh, preempt Apple's announcement with, frankly, one that's more exciting. Uh, where Apple announced that, congratulations, you can now associate your credit card with your phone and touch it to 
you know, do stuff like that, but you still have all the fees. PayPal is basically saying, if you don't want to pay any fees, all you have to do is just have people pay you in Bitcoin and it's easy. This episode is brought to you by CryptoKit.com, the easiest, fastest way to spend Bitcoins right from your browser. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is also brought to you by FoldingCoin. Folding at Home is a long-running project from the folks at Stanford University that basically enlists your spare CPU or GPU power to simulate complex protein folding. The results of all this distributed computation are tabulated and analyzed. They help new medicines and cures be derived for some of the most vexing diseases faced by man. But there's a problem. There's no reward for sharing your computer cycles in this way. You can join a team and you can earn points, but there can be no profit motive in helping research. So here's where Folding Coin comes in. It's what I call a cause coin. Folding Coin is a token built on Counterparty, created on a schedule, publicly set in advance, and distributed to those who join the Folding Coin folding team, based on their individual contribution to that team's effort. Folding Coin can't be redeemed right now, and it's only beyond counterparty utility as it can be used to tip at participating meetups, so its market value right now is dubious, but I think about it another way. If protein folding is something that people find valuable, and the only way you can get folding coin is by provably folding proteins, then even someone who doesn't want to contribute computational cycles, but does want to support protein folding, can accomplish this simply with money, by purchasing and holding some of the folding coin tokens. So if people like the cause or think it's important, now they have a really easy way to support the project's ecosystem at a meta level. And individual folders can choose between whether they think there's more support now, and thus a higher demand for the token, or if they think that that'll be more true at some point in the future. Interested? Confused? Visit foldingcoin.net to learn more. There's only one sponsor today, but while I've got your attention, if you've got an iPhone, head over to the App Store and grab your free copy of the Let's Talk Bitcoin network application. This is the second version we've released, and I'm pretty thrilled with it. The first version had positive feedback, but it didn't save your place in the current podcast you're listening to. You had limited ability to download specific episodes, so you had to stay online sometimes. You didn't have the option to autoplay new episodes, you couldn't play episodes at 2x speed, and you couldn't move around within an episode. All those things now have been fixed. In addition, you can now log in with your LTB account to comment on a specific episode or article, and actually you can enter the magic words while listening to the episode. If you haven't yet taken a look, this is all wrapped up in a very intuitive drag and flip interface. We hope you enjoy it and would love feedback on how the next version can be better. To those of you with Android devices, now that we've got the iOS device to a place I'm happy with, we'll be building that side of it out with the lessons learned here. To get your free copy now, visit the iOS App Store and search for Let's Talk Bitcoin. It's released under our developer's account, Marcin Roberski, so don't worry about it being the wrong one. In order for PayPal to uh, get interested in Bitcoin, they had to find something much, much more threatening on their competitive horizon. And that much more threatening thing is, is Apple. I think it's, it's really interesting. What we're seeing here, I think the broader context is important to realize. 
for the first time in probably several decades, we're seeing a renewed attempt by technology firms to enter the space of finance. And this is now happening at an accelerated pace and is becoming very, very noticeable. And PayPal was one attempt at that. And eventually, I think PayPal became quite diluted by being forced to mold itself more like a bank than a technology firm. And where initially it was disruptive and edgy and cool and hip, uh, all of that disruptive, edgy, cool hipness got regulated away uh, very effectively. Oh, yeah. (laughs) When did you, do you have a PayPal account or have you ever, first of all? I do have one. I did use PayPal in the very beginning, and then I stopped using them after experiencing some of the regulatory problems that were introduced in the, I guess, probably after 2004, 2005. I got on PayPal, I think maybe back in 2000 or 2001, something like that. This was before they sold to eBay. And the reason that I got on was because I was selling stuff, you know, junk around my parents' house and on eBay. And I mean, it was great at the beginning, but you're right. It did change a lot in the next couple of years as time went on. And people were experiencing some frustrating stuff, like having their account frozen or closed for no reason, having a really hard time getting in touch with a person to ask about, hey, what happened here, getting blocked from ever making another PayPal account again, getting put on some kind of blacklist, having to um, put in a lot of personal information like your social security number. And some people are freelancers and get paid online. So they kind of don't have much of a choice when they're thinking about dealing with PayPal to put in that personal information and to have to kind of put up with the sometimes lack of customer service that goes along with it if they have questions or whatever. What were some of the issues that you experienced? I think it was a a lot of the um, heightened identity and credit checking stuff that they introduced. And really, this is a very good lesson in what happens when the banks use regulation to avoid competition or to counter disrupt a competitor and to bring them more in line with the playing field in which the banks are very comfortable playing. Regulation isn't really something that curtails banking activities. Regulation is something that allows banks to curtail any competition. And they're quite comfortable paying the uh, fees and costs and uh, passing on the inconvenience to customers that regulation imposes because it maintains their dominance, it maintains their control over the market. It allows them to eradicate competition. And I think PayPal's essential transformation from a technology insurgent disruptive company in the beginning of the noughties, I guess the 2000s era, into just another bank, That story is instructive because that's essentially what the banks are hoping to do to Bitcoin with things like the New York Bit license. Load it up with identities, make know your customer and AML regulations become burdensome enough to make Bitcoin just as frictionful as the rest of the banking system, cause it to have to raise borders and close down transactions across borders because these regulations won't really effectively allow that. 
and make Bitcoin into yet another banking institution or banking payment system, essentially neutering it. We've seen some of that already sort of starting to happen with Coinbase. It's really interesting to compare sort of the history of Coinbase and how they've interacted with their customers uh, with PayPal in the early days of PayPal. I mean, if you joined Coinbase early on, they always did sort of hold your private keys and try to make it a little more user-friendly, I guess you could say, for people who just didn't really know much about Bitcoin. But in recent months, we've heard reports of them sort of picking out certain people that are using Coinbase to buy or sell Bitcoins and saying, you've exceeded um, certain limits. You need to tell us where you got these Bitcoins or why you're selling these Bitcoins, how you got them in the first place, what you're going to use the money for. If you withdraw Bitcoins from Coinbase, you have to prove that you're withdrawing them to a Bitcoin address. You have to say what you're going to use them for once you withdraw them. Like it, The level of um, personal questions that they've been asking is even far beyond anything that I've ever heard of from PayPal. You know, just asking these really intrusive kind of financial questions. And they're, they're claiming that they're doing it all because of the regulations. And I, I don't doubt that, you know, that's basically the level that they probably feel they need to go to. And they're under extra scrutiny from the government because they're a Bitcoin company and they're just really scared to death. I don't think they're scared to death, though. I mean, I think that's exactly the path they wanted to take. They wanted to become quote, legitimate, and they wanted to forge a path that was very similar to the path that PayPal forged and to become the PayPal of Bitcoin. And not the old PayPal, but the new PayPal. Not the 2000s PayPal, but the 2010 PayPal. The heavily regulated, fully compliant, uh, very much aiming to be bought by JP Morgan Chase a type of company. And I think they'd be very happy if they were bought by JP Morgan Chase. It would fit in very nicely with culture. This is not a company that is intending to use Bitcoin as a force to disrupt the banks, but a company that's hoping to be bought by a bank, quite honestly. I, that's at least my my opinion. of, of and, and that's a perfectly legitimate business plan and a perfectly legitimate thing to do. And I'm, yeah, all all the power to them. But that has some implications. It has some implications that it means that you don't get the aspects of Bitcoin that are different. You don't get the aspects of Bitcoin that are disruptive. So in, in that context, I mean, let, let's look at what Apple did. One of the things that I'm curious about, which I don't know if they've announced yet, what are the fees going to be on these PayPal integrations? Like if you pay with Bitcoin through Braintree at a merchant or whatever, is the merchant still going to be eating a 3% fee or are they going to be maybe charging 1% or something like that or some intermediate amount? The fees are basically the one aspect of Bitcoin that initially people really liked about it that could potentially be preserved here. You know, you can't uh, use Bitcoins anonymously in this system or you can't be private about your finances, but you can uh, pay a lower fee. So what are they going to do with that? Or are they going to just kind of ignore that aspect and still keep the 3% fee. Well, I, w I would expect that since they've uh, neutered the flexibility and control and decentralization and cross-border capabilities of Bitcoin, or I very much expect that they will, reduced fees is the one thing they are going to keep. So Bitcoin gives them the ability to compete against Apple on a cost basis at a level that um, Visa and MasterCard can't offer. And I think that's going to be an interesting game to play. I mean, look at what Apple has done here. They announced Apple Pay, which is a mechanism for 
essentially transmitting credit card information through the near field communications or NFC mechanism, which is basically an RFID chip in the phone. And using that RFID chip to do a secured communication of your credit card information across a small gap. So you hold your phone close to a reader and bing, you make a payment. Now, there's really nothing very disruptive about this. This is no different than what Google Wallet already did with NFC payments. So it preserves all of the existing parts of the credit card system that are so disappointing to those who are in technology and understand Bitcoin and some of the things that that people hate about credit cards. It's a credit card system, so it's based on credit or debt. It's transmitting the same information that is a pull token, meaning that once you transmit that information, the credit card number, expiration date, CVV2 code, etc., across the wire. The merchant pulls from your account. Yeah, or in this case, across the wireless. The, The merchant pulls from your account, and they can pull again and again. And anyone who hacks into that merchant's database, as happened recently with Home Depot and 57 million cards, or Target before that, or, you know, countless and countless companies all that have been hacked in this way. The credit cards themselves are still vulnerable. Uh, There's still pieces of information that can be stolen and be used for fraud on your account. For other purposes, too. Yeah. yeah. And the the cards and all of the information that's transmitted by the phone is still uh, fully loaded with all of your identifiers and identity. So beyond the theft of the credit, someone who access information also has access to your identity and can use that identity to create new credit accounts on your behalf. And the credit cards still control who you can pay. So if Visa doesn't allow you to pay for a specific merchant or doesn't allow specific merchants to participate in their existing program, they're not going to allow it anymore with Apple Pay. So the same rules apply. You can't donate to WikiLeaks, but you can donate to the Ku Klux Klan, um, as was always the case with Visa and MasterCard. You can't buy cannabis at the dispensary, but you can buy an AK-47 at a gun shop. So whatever their morality program is, they impose it through the payment system. So you're subject to the restrictions of the visa code of practices for merchants. Now, it's going to be interesting to see if Apple themselves impose additional terms and conditions for who can use Apple Pay through the NFC channel, in which case you went from uh, three parties to your transaction, which is you, the merchant, and Visa or MasterCard, which in my mind is already one party too many, to potentially four parties per transaction, me, the merchant, Visa, and Apple. And then you get perhaps additional terms and restrictions on who can use it. And of course, the government is in all of those transactions. There's actually five parties, right? Right. Yeah, we we worry about the NSA listening to our phone calls. But what we don't realize is that under Section 215 of the Patriot Act, every single financial transaction any of us do on any electronic medium is not only trackable, but trackable without a warrant based on a national security letter of which uh, tens of thousands are issued each year with no reasonable suspicion other than a loose association to a current investigation. We already found out now that the uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court has uh, loosened even that requirement even further. So now if you're associated with someone who is supposedly bad or is associated with someone else who's supposedly bad, 
then they can even issue these in relation to activity that is protected under the First Amendment, which was a specific exclusion of Section 215, but they found a loophole. And if you receive one of these letters, you're, it basically forbids you from telling anyone about it. That's the other thing. You, you can't tell your spouse. You can't tell your, well, I think they would say you can't tell your attorney. You can't tell your attorney for sure. This is a gag order. And Apple implemented a canary clause in their annual statements. Uh, yeah. And this canary clause disappeared uh, yeah. about a month ago. So a canary clause is basically a statement that said we have not received any national security letters under Section 215 of the Patriot Act. That clause disappeared a month ago. Now, so, you know, the, the amount of surveillance, so there's what, four, how many parties are there now in this transaction? Five parties in this transaction? <laughs> I lost count, yeah. It's beginning to feel a bit more like an orgy than a transaction at this point. More a gangbang. <laughs> the customer is the one who's getting screwed. Way too many participants, if you ask me. So, here's the thing. Apple basically is now entering the financial services industry. And, and that on its own is very interesting. It's great news. It's, it's showing the fact that more and more technology companies are beginning to play in financial services. But they're entering the financial services industry entirely on the terms of the financial services industry um, and at the same level playing field and without bringing any disruptive innovation to a technology that is now more than 50 years old, the credit card technology. This isn't the iPhone of banking. This is more the flip phone of banking. It's the same old format. It hasn't really changed anything. It's just slightly smaller than the previous effort, right? So now instead of having to swipe the card, you just hover over the reader. It's, it's an incremental and not particularly significant innovation. Yeah, I was thinking that it's hard to get excited about this. But I am excited. I am actually really excited about this. And the reason I'm excited about this is because this does two things. First of all, it popularizes the concept of, uh, of uh, tap to pay and wireless communication payments using mobile devices. So a lot of people who have never thought of payments beyond the square piece of plastic and now going to familiarize themselves with making and receiving payments on a cell phone and on a smartphone. And I think that's exciting. The concept of popularizing mobile wallets in the first world is great. Uh, Apple is going to do that very effectively. They reach millions of consumers, people who are willing to try this technology and who will try it, who will then they already ab- have so many credit card numbers too. Right. And they're going to try it. And then they're going to discover that it continues to suffer from many of the same problems, which are not Apple's making. They're, they're essentially problems they've inherited by getting in bed with Visa and MasterCard and the other payment processors. What a better place to bring Bitcoin to the, to the table and say, well, you know, you're now familiar with using your smartphone device to make a payment. Well, how about we do something different with it, something that doesn't involve credit cards. And, and here are the advantages. So Bitcoin, by comparison, is not pull-based. It's push. Your information is not vulnerable to uh, compromise for extending your credit. Your identity is not vulnerable to compromise for identity theft. The merchant can go back into your account. And there will only be two in that transaction. You 
and the merchants. No one else is invited. No one else can get in between. And by the way, where Apple Pay, sorry, works only in the countries where you can have a credit card and where the merchant can have a bank account and where the merchant can get authorization by Visa to operate as a merchant, Bitcoin works anywhere with anyone. You can actually bring that conversation to the table and show the differences. One thing I'm wondering about, we've seen this announcement about Bitcoin and PayPal through Braintree, but it's been short on details of how it's actually going to work. The app has not actually come out yet for testing, at least not that I've seen, and I don't think it's out yet. Is it even going to be a push thing instead of a a pull thing? Like, are you going to have to have your account loaded with Bitcoin in order to be able to pay a merchant and then they take it from you? Is PayPal going to have your private keys? That seems like plainly yes, obviously. <laughs> that seems quite likely. Um, it, it depends. Maybe it's more of a back-end processing system, very similar to what BitPay and Coinbase already do for merchants, in which case PayPal will not have your private keys, or maybe they do, in which case you have a PayPal Bitcoin wallet. One thing I have seen is that there was something that came out that said, basically, um, PayPal is going to require all these merchants who are using this technology to be able to accept Bitcoin payments to put anti-money laundering stuff in place and KYC stuff in place. So it seems like you're going to have to go through PayPal because that's the only way you'll be able to be identified to the merchant. In which case, that's removing a lot of the compelling advantages of Bitcoin, which means that now, you know, PayPal is fairly limited. You can only use it in, I think, was 16, 18 countries. No, I think it's more, but there are like 69 countries around the world where you can't send PayPal payments to from the U.S. that I know of. Okay, so it's significantly limited from the U.S., but there's there's also limitations on where you can become a merchant to accept PayPal payments, in which countries you can accept PayPal payments. And of course, in order to use that, you have to have either a credit card or a bank account, in which case it's not really serving the people who precisely don't have those things. So it may be a, a, a nice and easy way for existing PayPal customers to get into Bitcoin, but not for existing Bitcoin customers to expand or to expand the reach of, of Bitcoin to, to those who can't have bank accounts or who can't have credit cards or those merchants who can't accept credit cards for whatever reason. So it doesn't really address that. They're probably not also going to do what Coinbase or Circle does. Like if you have a PayPal balance, you want to convert it to Bitcoin, let's just say. I have no indication that they're going to do that. Do you? No, I I have no indication at this time. We're short on details all around. But yeah, I mean, it is interesting to have this conversation because I think going back to something that you said at the beginning, Andreas, this is like just there there had to be a scarier competitor, uh, which is Apple, to scare Bitcoin into embracing PayPal. And it becomes this the enemy of my enemy is my friend type thing. Right? Well, well, this is where it gets interesting. So if technology companies are indeed uh, taking on the financial industry or moving into the financial industry in, in a big way, and I think that's really happening for the first time, you know, Silicon Valley is going after Wall Street, uh, or at least going after Wall Street's market, addressable market, and trying to find ways to make uh, obviously much bigger profits than they can simply by selling devices and software and and play in this financial industry. And I think that's great news because technology innovation in finance is pretty damn slow. But 
now you have a company like Apple playing in this space. And Apple has an enormous war chest, an enormous amount of cash, enormous access to consumers through its devices and software, enormous addressable markets, an enormous amount of credit cards. So if you're a company like PayPal, how do you compete against that? You can't outspend them. You can't outmarket them. You can't reach consumers better than they can. You can't preposition your product on the consumer device. So we're back in, you know, Apple essentially is using the same kind of market dominance techniques that Microsoft used in the early days to fight the internet. Really, this is, I see Apple Pay as the internet explorer play. You know, Microsoft initially tried to fight the internet and tried to create closed systems and tried to support the closed systems of AOL and CompuServe um, by creating a much more limited version of the internet. That didn't work. So then they opened it up a bit and created a kind of browser, which wasn't really a standards compatible browser and tried to do everything its own way. And that failed as well. And today they're talking about rebranding Internet Explorer because of the joke it's become and because it's a toxic brand. So in the end, the open access network, the Internet won over the CompuServe's, the AOLs, and the closed browser ecosystem of Internet Explorer. Well, now that Apple is moving into the financial industry, they're trying, again, the same path. They're trying to use market dominance to play in the closed system of Visa and MasterCard. And there's only one way to compete against that for the immediate competitors to back the disruptive application, to back Bitcoin. Bitcoin's architecture being fundamentally different means that Apple can't effectively compete against that. It's a completely different market. You can't go and compete with Apple head-on in a market they already dominate. You have to shift the playing field to one where Apple simply can't compete given its exposure. And I think that's why PayPal announced Bitcoin integration at this timing. Really, we're going to see a slew of technology companies looking at the space and saying, well, there's now an 800-pound gorilla Apple playing in this space, and we can't compete against that. But if we shift to something like Bitcoin, the architecture is so fundamentally different that that Apple can't play in that space, and we'll be able to compete more effectively. What do you think? It makes a lot of sense. You could say, well, then Apple could just do something with Bitcoin too, but they've given no indication that they're going to do that, and they probably don't want to because they don't need to, frankly. They're so big, and they've got so many credit card numbers, and they're really pushing this technology. Why would they want to get involved with Bitcoin? Right. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Once a company achieves uh, dominance, um, it maintains that dominance forever, uh, just like IBM achieved dominance in the operating system and they didn't need to play with Linux. Oh, oops. And just like Microsoft <laughs> achieved dominance on the desktop and they didn't need to play with Linux. Oh, oops. Uh, just like Microsoft achieved dominance in the networking space, they didn't need to play with the internet. Oh, oops. Um, <laughs> Just like well, Kodak achieved dominance in photography and they didn't need to play in the smartphone space. Oops, oops, and oops. <laughs> well, I wonder if you will even see Apple lobbying against Bitcoin, you know, politically. Like, if, are they going to start to get into trying to increase these um, regulations and supporting the bit license? That would be really scary. Do you remember when the term fear, uncertainty, and doubt was invented? It was invented. Uh, to talk about Microsoft's attempts 
to gain and control and maintain dominance in their own markets by creating fear, uncertainty, and doubt about the internet, and fear, uncertainty, and doubt about uh, Linux, and fear, uncertainty, and doubt at that time about Apple. It wouldn't be surprising if Apple used that same technique in order to now try to discredit Bitcoin. But I think what's really interesting here is that Apple has entered its post-innovation phase. Uh, Apple is no longer the great innovator. That era, unfortunately, passed with Steve Jobs. And even then, it was already waning. I don't think there are any radical, amazing, innovative platforms coming out of Apple, certainly not in the financial space. The really disruptive, the really innovative payment system here is Bitcoin. And Apple is going to probably stay away from it and try to play the same old tired game of credit cards, only with a tiny incremental twist. If there might be a silver lining here, you might be able to say that all the press and perhaps the ability to use Bitcoin in a really handholding kind of user-friendly context with through PayPal might get some people interested in Bitcoin and then they'll do a little bit of research and realize, hey, I don't have to use this with PayPal. I can just use it on my own. <laughs> That's true. All of this, I think, really helps further the adoption of Bitcoin because Apple Pay doesn't really even play in the same market that Bitcoin is playing. This is not the solution that is going to bring banking to the other 6 billion, those who have no banking infrastructure, who didn't have credit cards to start with, and certainly don't have iPhones. The huge market out there, financial inclusion and cross-border transactions and, and really revitalizing finance across the world, that's going to be addressed by open platforms. And that means Android, it means Linux, it means Bitcoin on the internet peer-to-peer. -peer. It's not going to be addressed by Apple Pay on the iPhone. This goes back to something I've said many times before, which is that Bitcoin is not about shopping in the first world. It's about everything else everywhere else. And this goes to prove it because, you know, Apple is addressing a very specific market and that is shopping in the first world. And, and Bitcoin isn't the immediately obvious choice for that and certainly has a big dollop of disruption and dangerous innovation going on there, at least in their perspective. So they're not going to touch that, not for a while, but it's a Trojan horse for its competitor. So that would be interesting. I agree with you about these open platforms being the way to go with the this so-called rest of the world. But the internet is still not really an open platform in some places. You know, it's kind of tightly controlled by mobile companies who are charging people on their just browser-capable phones for data. Have you ever heard about this P-Cell internet thing? No. Can you tell me about it? P-Cell is a potentially disruptive technology to basically get internet everywhere, like have the whole world covered with internet. And it has the potential to make internet access really way more accessible in places where it's currently not. It's way more of an open platform than like the current internet infrastructure is. So just wanted to sort of mention that, that before we get um, people in Africa using Bitcoin on their Linux or <laughs> machines or Android smartphones, we probably need some more openness in the area of internet. And maybe P-Cell could be the technology that brings that to the world. 
Yeah, I think that's that's probably true. But at the same time, we've seen a lot of projects that have effectively downpacked Bitcoin to make it accessible over over um, feature phones for SMS based operations. The data is the problem. That's what. Well, I interviewed Richard Bose, who went to Kenya to try to increase Bitcoin adoption and spread the word about Bitcoin, and he was saying like. This is just a big barrier because people don't have access to data. And if they do, it's through their smartphone and they're paying for these credits. And, you know, sometimes they can be spending 10% of their meager paycheck on just trying to get 100 megabytes of data. So it's really a problem. Text messaging, you wouldn't be using the data platform to do that. So there's different rates for the text messaging. And you can do Bitcoin over text messaging. I think really it's it's a matter of addressing both ends of the problem at the same time. You have to look at optaking infrastructure and investing in infrastructure development. And one of the interesting things about Bitcoin and infrastructure is that because it allows you to do micropayments, you could potentially have uh, crowdsourced infrastructure and mesh networks and things like that being invested in with Bitcoin. And at the same time, you have to bring Bitcoin technology down to the level where it can be adopted by cheap technology. So you can use Bitcoin with text messaging instead of data plans, which, as you said, are extremely expensive. But honestly, you know, I don't see Bitcoin in Africa happening in the next decade. Possibly it might happen in the next decade, but but certainly towards the end of the decade. But can Bitcoin happen... In the Philippines, in Indonesia, can it happen in big parts of China? Can it happen in Brazil? Can it happen in Argentina? It can happen in a lot of places where you have just that just right mix of infrastructure, literacy, financial needs, collapsing currencies and heavy handed government controls. And in those places, the infrastructure really already exists and is very widespread. Perhaps not Africa yet, but maybe Manila. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's episode was provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Adam Levine. Music was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Today's magic word is brain. That's B-R-A-I-N, brain. You've got until the 7th of October to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app and enter the magic words to secure your share of the listener rewards.